Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. Drawdowns on the reserves so far have played a big role in bringing down oil prices. We're going to continue to responsibly use that national asset. President Biden orders release of more oil from nation's strategic petroleum reserve. Today we begin to right the wrongs inflicted on our residents by companies who deliberately chose profits over our global environment. New Jersey becomes latest state to sue big oil over climate science lies. Plus, the decisions we make now are going to determine the future of our nation and the future of your generation for the next 30 or more years. Midterm elections will determine the course of climate action for decades. All of those decisions and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. It's the final batch of 180 million barrels from the nation's stockpile that the president last spring pledged to release over six months. Today saying the reserve is still more than half full, but Republicans say the reserve is half empty. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I'm sure your news is both half empty and half full. (laughs) What do you have for us today? Well, first up, in Nigeria, unusually intense seasonal rains have triggered the worst flooding in years, damaging homes, infrastructure, and vast swaths of farmland. The intense flooding has killed more than 600 people and displaced more than a million, aggravating food and fuel shortages in Africa's most populous nation. Extreme rainfall is directly linked to man-made global warming. Here in the U.S., in Florida, inland flooding is still receding weeks after Hurricane Ian. Officials now warn of a surge in infections of flesh-eating bacteria. The bacteria thrive in warm, brackish waters and can be deadly. 29 people have been infected in hard-hit counties so far. Four have died. It's just getting better and better down there, isn't it? In other news, a new study finds that PFAS chemicals, a class of chemicals widely used in household and industrial products that are linked to kidney and liver disease and cancer are likely polluting most U.S. waterways. The study found detectable levels of PFAS chemicals in 83% of waterways tested in the United States. The Biden EPA has begun the process of regulating PFAS chemicals. Aren't those the same PFAS chemicals that are also found in Everyone's bloodstream at this point? Yes. Not good. President Biden on Wednesday announced the release of an additional 15 million barrels of oil from the nation's strategic petroleum reserve to lower rising gas prices that are driving inflation. Although gas prices have been falling and domestic oil production is returning to pre-pandemic levels, Saudi Arabia's OPEC plus oil cartel recently voted to cut production to raise global oil prices, helping Russia to fund its brutal war. War on Ukraine. The Saudis' move is widely seen as a ploy to boost Republicans' chances in the November 8 midterm elections. If Republicans win control of Congress, they will slow down America's shift away from gas and oil. The midterms are hugely consequential for the future of climate policy and clean energy. While Democrats have passed the most significant climate legislation in U.S. history through the Inflation Reduction Act and last year's bipartisan infrastructure bill, Republicans at both the state and federal levels have vowed to dismantle climate policies, handcuff agencies, expand oil and gas drilling, and weaken pollution standards. Politico reports that state governors' races are critical for climate, particularly particularly in swing states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, where Democrats face Trump-endorsed Republican climate science deniers. It matters because state officials will control a significant chunk of infrastructure funding from the Democrats' landmark climate law, deciding how and where and if to deploy it. Are they allowed to use it to drill for more oil? They might just find a way to do that. I bet they will. But some good news. The Biden administration announced it will hold the first ever offshore wind lease sale for energy projects off the coast of California. 
Finally, some accountability news. The state of New Jersey this week became the latest to announce a lawsuit against five oil majors, including Exxon and BP and the American Petroleum Institute, for deceiving consumers about climate change in violation of state law. Multiple investigations have proven that the companies knew since the 1950s that burning their product would cause catastrophic climate change, and the companies chose to spend millions on a decades-long massive disinformation campaign to sow doubt about climate science. New Jersey Attorney General Matthew Platkin cited the rising costs of climate disasters and infrastructure damages, saying the oil industry, not taxpayers, should pay. It's long overdue that these betrayals of their customers and of the public come to an end and that the perpetrators of these lies pay for their conduct and that the people of New Jersey receive restitution for all that they have lost. Go New Jersey. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. I've been a lot of places, seen pictures of the rest. But of all the places I can't think of, I like Jersey best. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from Chicago. The United States is no longer a Judeo-Christian nation. That's not a statement of opposition. Judeo-Christian, the paradigm, did good work for nearly 80 years. Now it's time to move to the next chapter. That's author, speaker, and Interfaith America president Ibu Patel, as heard on his brand new podcast, Interfaith America with Ibu Patel. Ibu is a longtime friend and recent colleague, and he'll be joining me on our show for an honest examination of the potential religion has not only to feed division, as we see happening so often, but also to bridge divides at this moment in our history. It is blasphemous. It is not of the divine. It is not holy to deny people the right to vote. When President Barack Obama wanted religious leaders and experts for his White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, he called on Fred Davey. When Senator Chuck Schumer wanted a faith leader to join the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, he too turned to Reverend Davey. When Bill de Blasio needed someone to lead the Civilian Complaints Review Board for the NYPD, he also turned to Reverend Fred Davey. Fred is also the Senior Advisor on Racial Equity at Interfaith America, and I'm looking forward to spending time with him later in this hour. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on iTunes and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the country, and you will not want to miss it. So please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, I really want to thank you. And if you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help to keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Right before joining Interfaith Alliance as president, I spent three years at Interfaith America, formerly known as Interfaith Youth Corps. This is led by founder and president Ibu Patel. This organization is making an enormous difference in unlocking the potential of America's religious diversity for the benefit of all. Wednesday night, I celebrated with the Interfaith America community as they observed their 20th anniversary in Chicago. And so I couldn't miss the opportunity to connect with my longtime friend and former boss. So here we are in the studio that he uses for his brand new podcast, Interfaith America with Ibu Patel. Ibu, thank you for finding time to talk to me. I am so glad to talk to you and congratulations on last night. So Paul, Paul, we we are not going to start with my podcast. We are going to start with your fingerprints and uh, your influence on Interfaith Youth Corps and Interfaith America and me. 
you were literally one of the first people that I reached out to after having the idea for Interfaith Youth Corps in 1998. You'd just written a book on young people and religion, which is exactly what I was focusing on back then. And that book, Teen Spirit, helped me make helped me feel like this was a real thing, that the idea that young people inspired by faith across lines of diversity could come together in interfaith action projects. And you generously met me at, I remember, I remember the details, at a breakfast spot called Orange with Appeal on North Clark Avenue. And you were encouraging, and you thought it was a great idea. And then for years after that, when I would come back to Chicago or to the States, we would meet, we would talk about starting the organization, and then over the course of time, you were at Riverside Church, you were at Princeton, you were at the Huffington Post, you were at Auburn Seminary. We just did things together. Yeah. And you continue to kind of guide and shape and help and support and partner. And then, I mean, like the stars aligned and you came to Interfaith Youth Corps and you played probably the single most important role in transforming it into Interfaith America, including dragging me, kicking and screaming, <laughs> not quite, but, but, but convincing me that the vision had to be bigger and the name had to match the vision. And the studio that we are sitting in right now, you also built. So <laughs> I just think it's, I think, I think it is really, I think our friendship over two plus decades, last night we celebrated the 20th anniversary of Interfaith America, nay, Interfaith Youth Corps, but you were there three years before the beginning. Well, That's really special, Paul. It, Our friendship is special. You're a special figure in, in American religion, and I feel proud to know you and to be a part of this podcast. So that is the appropriate beginning <laughs> well, you are You are very generous with everyone. Your book, which is um, We Need to Build... We need to build field notes for diverse democracy. Right. And I think that is speaking into exactly what you're talking about. Like, yeah. what does it mean to build? And yeah. I want to start there specifically building with the building blocks of religion, yeah. which for many people were like, that's exactly what you need to leave out of the equation. And you were saying, no, actually, that's what we need to be essential to the equation. So I'm going to I'm gonna connect that question with, with uh, the previous one. One other thing I want to highlight about last night was religion was all over the place on stage oh. and and the 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 animating spark of interfaith youth corps back in june of 1998 was that religion can be inspiring religion can be inspiring your faith can be inspiring your grandparents faith can be inspiring other people's faiths can be inspiring faith that you believe in and don't believe in can be inspiring and we should connect to that electric current and we should use it for good because it can very obviously be used for bad. But it, religion is going to inspire people to do things. The question is what? And I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to shy away from that. And, and lots of people over the course of time have, 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 basic, have subtly asked us that we are an interfaith organization. We are about religious diversity being inspiring. And last night, Muslims and Christians and Jews and secular humanists and Sikhs, they embraced the electric current of faith out in the open, and it was so beautiful. Yeah. It was so beautiful. I mean, we could go through the, the Sikh man uh, who lost his father, Pardeep, yep. Pardeep uh, in Oak Creek, talking about like how the interfaith community gave not only him back his 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 charge and his life, but also the children of his community. He saw it. I mean, it was just, it's, it's so beautiful. So, so congratulations. And now going yeah. forward, there's work to be done. Right. And until, until we need to build, I mean, this, this is embedded in the book. It's, it's explicit and it's also woven throughout, which is religion gives us a model for how to do positive social change. And positive social change is the articulation of an ideal and the building of concrete institutions to that ideal. So the articulation of the, of, of the kingdom of God, that is an ideal, right? Uh, the intersection of deen and dunya, that is an ideal. Repairing the world to kun olam, that is an ideal. The question is, how do we approximate that in the imperfect place called earth? And you do that through institutions. You do that through the colleges and the hospitals and the social service agencies and the refugee resettlement agencies you build. And it is always going to be imperfect. That's just what it means to be human. That's just what it means to be human. But 
there's another approach to social change, which is find the things you hate and shout them down. And that's not who we are. That's not what we do. That's not, that's not who I am naturally. And honestly, Paul, you have encouraged me in this really positive direction. Your, your encouragement of be positive. Just be positive, right? There's enough people doing the negative. And there, there might be some use to that, but that's not who I am. That's not who we want to be at Interfaith America. And we are not making up our approach. We really find it in how religion operates. And I think to myself, like in Islam, what does the Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of God be upon him, do when he goes to Medina? He builds institutions. He builds a mosque, which by the way, serves as a community center for all. He builds a constitution of Medina. He builds a market where people can sell their goods and services at fair prices and other people can buy them. He, he creates a city by building good institutions. And, and, and you know I have this very simple definition of what the good society is in my book, We Need to Build. The good society is made up of good institutions. So if we have institutions that are not, as good as they ought to be, well, the answer is build better ones. Yeah, build better ones. Yeah, I th- I think the you have the the idea of like how do we look at progress, and I think that you know like what does it mean to like focus on what we can how we can go further from here rather than what we haven't done. Like you know I, I think right. that you I think it is a mindset, and I think the. The danger, and this is something that I wrestle with, is like, how do we do that without ignoring <laughs> the challenges that are in front of us? And I think this is where the Interfaith Alliance is is a little bit more like explicitly addressing what we see as challenges. And um, and I know we have, you know, I, I think there's room for both approaches, yeah. but I'm curious, like right now we're just very concerned about the what Christian nationalism is looking like. And I wonder how you approach that, which might, I recognize is going to be different than how we are, but I think that there's overlap and an important recognition that um, we both want a diverse society yeah. where everybody is recognized. People of faith and no faith are all treated with dignity and respect. How do you, how do you approach these challenges? So, so I do think that there are overlaps, but, but more importantly, complementarities. And, yes. and Paul, you know, what you did here at Interfaith America, what you encouraged me to do, which is to, to highlight white Christian nationalism as a grave danger and as in a clear foil to, to the society we're trying to encourage. Um, and to, to compare it to its, its predecessor, which was the KKK of the 1920s. And, uh, the, you know, we've written a number of articles about how the really powerful interfaith movement of the middle of the 20th century, the movement that that included Catholics and Jews after a time in which they were profoundly excluded, uh, that created the notion of Judeo-Christian America, uh, a step forward from, from Protestant America, that did its work because it pointed to the KKK and said, that is not the America we want. But there were 4 million people who were part of the KKK in the 1920s. It was a major organization. They, they were ethos. marching marching yeah. down the center of uh, Washington, D.C. Electing candidates. Proudly. Yeah, electing yeah. candidates. Yeah. And so I absolutely agree there are grave dangers there. And and I've actually really taken your guidance and encouragement and, and, and lived into the positive uh, uh, without being Pollyannish about the negative. Part of it is it's, it's who I am. Right, it's it's who I am. I think by nature, um, I I also and this is really important to say. You know, I'm from India and I've spent months there over the course of my life, and I have seen many a leprous beggar child, and I, I know what bad looks like. I don't know what bad lives like. I've never lived anywhere close to that, but I know what really bad looks like, and and I just have this bone deep sense that I I think is probably reasonably common amongst immigrants. And, you know, if you can breathe the air and drink the water, alhamdulillah, praise be to God. And that doesn't, it's not, a, it's not an argument for complacency. It's an argument for optimism. Mm-hmm. It's an argument for building from potential, right? Uh, and and I, I, one of the things I actually loved about last night was there was joyous critique from the stage. I don't mind critique. I just can't stand despair. Yes, I think that's I so important. I, I Thank can't you. stand... Um, uh, a, just a sense of like we have to, we have to find 
the we have to find the gray in the silver lining. I don't want to do that. <laughs> the way I understand your mission is that there's never a time when there's not an option to do something better. There's oh, I love that. Yeah. You know, there's never a time when we can't figure out, okay, yes, and here's what we're going to do about it. And I think that what you do is bring together um, – you, you're, you're bringing together a what I believe is can be hopefully a willing coalition who will hopefully make the center hold. I am focused, uh, and we as an organization are focused of the kind of existential threat that we see um, to some some rights, but we're also like. I believe in this bringing people together to learn from one another and to have everyone transformed. And that's what I thought was so beautiful about last night. We, you know, one of the, um, one of the, so last night, Ramina Shashibi, my, my friend and somebody like, I just have love and admiration for a ton. Uh, um, his band played and, and also of course he, he's the founder of an organization called the inner city Muslim action network, which is amongst the most impressive Muslim oriented community development organizations in the country. In any case, one of the things that Iman does, which I, I just think is a model is they agitate around, um, corner stores in black neighborhoods that sell liquor. They, yeah. they, they encourage the corner stores to stop doing that and instead to carry fresh produce. But you know what they also do? They started their own grocery store. Yeah. So they're not just going around telling other people what they're doing wrong, right? Like, <laughs> they're like building they, it. They're building, they're building what right looks. And yeah. that's actually what religion is all about, right? You have a vision of what the good society is, and then you build something concrete that approximates that. And, and by the way, there's, you know, the definition of a food desert is a certain geography without access to fresh produce. So guess what? If you build a grocery store, it stops being a food desert, right? In other words, you have really solved a problem for a particular geography, and you have offered a model to other people for how to do it. It is actually a deep concern of mine if we are training hearts and minds to go around telling other people what they're doing wrong all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that having um, figuring out ways to move forward to achieve our country, as Baldwin said, and that uh, Rorty wrote a book about, um, I think that's the like, what, are, how can we move forward? One, like, really kind of dis- <laughs> I, I won't say despairing, because then you're going to come for me, but difficult situation happened recently in Dearborn, where I don't know if you saw this, but there was a largely Muslim community pitted against the gay community yeah. about schools. And it's like a, it's like a test case of like divide. And then the, and then the, the state leadership came in and almost fanned those flames. And, you know, and I'm just wondering, like, in a case like that, first of all, we recognize that Muslim and LGBT are not necessarily different things like there are (laughs) lgbt people in the muslim community we know that but what is a way forward there that along the model of we need to build along the model of interfaith america where where those where where communities could come together and hear one another and find a common a a path forward so so what i'd love to do is move three four five steps before that Mm. moment right there is a mindset right now where it's basically the dominant versus the marginalized. And the dominant are white, Christian, middle-class, educated, straight men, and everybody else is the marginalized, and every, all the marginalized agree with each other. And so to, to, in, in that paradigm, it's shocking to see people of a quote-unquote minority religious persuasion uh, um, be in conflict with people of a minority uh, with gay folks. But it's not shocking to me at all because I don't buy into the dominant and marginalized mindset. I buy into the mindset that we live in a diverse democracy and diversity is not just the differences you like and that what we have to learn how to do is to be able to disagree on some fundamental things, work together on other fundamental things, and be able to have common spaces where it is easier for people to cooperate. So if we begin from that principle and that mindset, I think the question becomes, how do we have schools where people of a range of identities feel like they can bring their best student and teacher self to that school? I, I, would, I, I don't know the solution to this particular moment. I do think what that community did at that school board meeting was very hurtful to people, and I'm sad about that. I'm sad about that. I 
think more of those kinds of things are going to happen in part because the manner in which loud voices on the left and loud voices on the right have sh- have formatted the situation assumes that groups of people who in fact do have interesting tensions all should be getting along let's say i don't think that that's the case i i think that there are obviously differences across religions and across communities and the question is how can those differences live in positive relationship and cooperation with one another and there's probably no more fundamental place to do that except at a school maybe a hospital is a second fundamental place right but but how do our schools and hospitals be spaces where people who might have deep disagreements can cooperate with each other and learn how to build positive relationships. I want to talk a little bit about the podcast, uh, you know, because, you know. Something I, else you encourage me to do. Thank <laughs> you for that. You know, I mean, and I think anybody listening right now um, is recognizing the gift of language and the 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 spirit of, um, I, I won't say optimism, but hope hope and, and uh, pragmatism in the deep sense of pragmatism that, that Ibu brings, you're also offering that in conversation with a lot of people from all sides of the spectrum about the future of interfaith America, the nation, not, not, not just the organization. Talk a little bit about what you've experienced so far through these conversations. Well, I, I, will, I will begin with the story of how you convinced me to do a podcast, uh, which is you... You said to me, you're like, look, there's all kinds of people out there talking. You actually have something to say. And more importantly, over the course of 20 plus years, you've met a lot of other people who have interesting things to say about the positive role of religion in the world. And and when you use the role of religion in the world, it clicks something in my Muslim brain that that uh, 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 there's a classic Muslim kind of juxtaposition is is known as deen and dunya, uh, faith and world. And, and Islam is is a religion that leans heavily into how faith means world meets world. And here's what I mean by that, right? The, the Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of God be upon him, receives his revelation in the cave uh, uh, um, uh, on Mount Hira in the year 610. Well, after he receives his revelation, he never goes back up on that mountain for extended periods of time. He lives his life in the world. And while Jesus is a great prophet in Islam who brings a powerful message. It's Peter and Paul who do the conversions and build a church. But in the case of the prophet Muhammad, he does all of that. And the reason I say that is because my faith is a faith that engages in the world, that that is its particular kind of emphasis and gift. And so this notion of deen and dunya, how does how does a religion meet world, was the, the central ethos of the podcast. And, and I got to talk to a lot of great people about, about that, uh, particularly how the shifting demographics about American, around American religion, the, the growth in atheists and agnostics, the, uh, the growth in Muslims, the relative declines in, in white Christianity, what that all is going to mean for, for American religion. I, you know, spoke with Simranjit Singh about his, his great new book, The Light We Give. I spoke with Krista Tippett actually right when she was ending her weekly radio show and going to all podcast. I spoke with John Powell and Trabian Shorters about the intersection of, of race and religious diversity. And Trabian said something really beautiful to me. He said his grandparents would say, you know, the real world, da, da, da. And by the real world, they meant the spirit world. The spirit world was the real world, hmm. Hmm. right? And, and they would just use the phrase uh, um, commonly and not explain it. And it took Trabian a while as a kid to figure out that like what grandpa is describing is actually the spirit world. And that, that's the world that he lives in. I spoke with David Brooks um, about, you know, shifts in American religion demographics and where religion meets world. Robbie Jones, Shirley Hoekstra from the, the uh, uh, Evangelical Christian Campus Coalition, uh, the CCCU, Lori Patton, the president of Middlebury, Josh Stanton and Ben Spratt, who wrote a great book called Awakenings about, about uh, powerful movements they're seeing within the Jewish community. So it, it's, it's, it is a podcast that I'm very proud of. Uh, um, 
you know, Silma, who was one of the producers, said, "We're popular in Ireland. Evidently, <laughs> evidently, some 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 dozens, uh, soon hundreds of people are passing this podcast around." I Ireland. love it. I love it. It's no longer we're big in Japan. That's it's right. We're popular in Ireland. That's right. Listen, it's a it's a wonderful. I've, I I listened to your conversation with uh, Simran, who's a dear friend of both of ours, and it's just you know, it's so inspiring because I think what what you know what with you and with Fred Davy, who we also talked with, everybody's coming from somewhere and everybody's building their life as they're trying to build their community, their family and their nation. And so it's just a really, you know, that's a lovely place. I encourage everyone to, to look for uh, Interfaith America with Ibu Patel. We will put links on our uh, website. I just want to thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Ibu Patel is founder and president of Interfaith America and host of the brand new Interfaith America with Ibu Patel podcast. His latest book is titled, We Need to Build Field Notes for Diverse Democracy. Ibu, thank you for the warm welcome. Congratulations on an extraordinary celebration. And thank you for being with us here on State of Belief Radio. Thank you, Paul, and love you, really, for all the years. Thank you. We need to take another break, but up next, Reverend Fred Davey, Interfaith America Senior Advisor on Racial Equity. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear the full episode anytime on our website. You'll also find links to topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. I just watched a 2014 movie, I Don't Know How I Missed, based on a true story. The film is Pride, and it chronicles the efforts of gays and lesbians support the minors a group in London that supported the national coal miners' strike of 1984-85, to 85, a strike to stop the mine closures that were promoted by the Iron Lady, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, to reduce the power of the unions. The group was the brainchild of Mark Ashton, an activist with the gay rights movement in Britain, and, although the film never mentions this, he was a member of the Communist Party and General Secretary of the Young Communist League. His pitch to his comrades was that they should support the miners, despite some of the gay men having been bashed by anti-gay violence in those very communities, because the powers that be treated both groups so terribly. The group raised and sent a ton of money to three mining communities in Wales, and then began visiting the miners and their families. There was the usual anti-gay bias on the part of some, but others welcomed them from the beginning, especially most of the women. Some of the miners' wives visited their gay allies in London and spent a wild night going to London's gay bars. People on both sides came to respect and care about each other. Then a leak to the sensational press, such as it was in the pre-internet age, highlighting the gays' support, led the miners to vote to end their relationship with the group. The union eventually lost the strike. It's notable that this occurred as AIDS was ravaging the world, and a scene in the movie shows one gay man criticizing the group for raising funds for minors, perhaps anti-gay minors, and not for the gay community. The film ends as the gay community in the UK is putting on its annual gay pride march in London. Remarkably, busload after busload of minors and their families arrive to join the parade. This really happened, and I have goosebumps as I'm telling this. As the credits roll, there are updates to the lives of the real people depicted in the film. A member of Gays and Lesbians Support the Minors, who was the first man in the UK diagnosed with HIV, was still thriving. A miner's wife, who became a leader of the Minor Gay and Lesbian Alliance and then went back to school, was elected to Parliament from Wales. And Mark Ashton, the leader of Gays and Lesbians Support the Minors, died of AIDS at 26 just two years after the events depicted, that broke my heart. This story offers food for thought for our current situation. The intersectionality, what we used to call solidarity, is off the charts inspiring. The LGBTQ plus movement, after making many strides, is facing some of the worst backlash in decades, at least in the U.S. And don't get me started on the devolution of the media. 
and coal mines across the U.S. are closing, at first due to cheaper frack gas, but now also due to cleaner and cheaper renewables. I can't be against that, because coal is deadly not only for the climate, but for the communities where it is mined, whether underground or through blowing the tops off the mountains. But the miners are not the villains, and I've seen their anger and fear at the prospect of losing their livelihoods. In fact, they could be heroes in their own film. It's encouraging that among the positive measures in the Inflation Reduction Act is the extra points proposed projects get when they pay union wages for the workers hired. I heard about this film from my friend George Lakey's book, How We Win, one of the best books on organizing I've ever read. And even though I gave away the plot, I highly encourage you all to watch the film for yourselves. Visit my website for links at melindatuhus.net. That's M-E-L-I-N-D-A-T-U-H-U-S dot net. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. Vice President Kamala Harris and Hillary Clinton are owed an apology. They were right about Tulsi Gabbard. Oh, guess who else was? I Malcolm was. Nance, who we'll talk to today. You know what else Tulsi's done? What? She's gotten all the teams she wants this week from people yes. like you. Yes. 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 It works. I'm the most easily owned liberal in America. All right, Billy Bass. She was irrelevant until she said this. Yes. Find the Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices. You've got us 24 hours a day on your mobile smartphone via the Progressive Voices app. This is the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Paul Rauschenbusch. From the Obama White House to Union Theological Seminary to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, the Reverend Frederick Davey is a high-profiled and respected voice on diversity, inclusion, and freedom. Fred is also Senior Advisor on Racial Equity at Interfaith America, which is where I was able to catch up with him. Fred, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Paul. It is so amazing to be with you. You've done so much. Like that was just like a snippet of what you've done. So it's just like, but you also come from somewhere. And I was just wondering if you can talk a little bit, go, go, uh, not to, not to, you know, out your, your age, but go, go, go way (laughs) back. And and tell it, tell us a little bit about where you come from, which informs like what you've been doing with your life. Sure. You know, um, as I reflect, um, uh, on my socialization, um, um, being raised, um, I, I think there are two things that really formed me uh, as a kid. Um, that is faith and service, or spiritual development service. And I see it now. I didn't necessarily see it at the time. So it's a little town in North Carolina called Belmont. Uh, when I grew up there, there were about 5,000 people in the town. Um, I don't know, maybe six, 700 of us were black, uh, and the rest of the town was white. Um, the town kind of fully integrated when I was 10 years old. A uh, number of um, small black churches um, in uh, our little village and then um, a couple outside of uh, what would have been considered the black community, or there were a couple of black communities in Belmont, but the main one was the one where I grew up. Um, and our church was, our, the church is, I grew up Presbyterian, which is kind of unusual for African Americans in the South. Um, and there are reasons for that that I can or cannot get into, we'll see. Uh, but uh, our church and the churches around us were very much involved in the community uh, because they were the institutions that primarily addressed issues that this black community was having in, in the predominantly white town. And I came of age, um, you know, when um, Martin Luther King Jr. and, uh, you know, the SCLC and Jesse Jackson and uh, Y.T. Walker and Ralph Abernathy and all those people were kind of um, in the mix of things. I was young. I was 12 when King was assassinated, but I was, I was st- still had enough consciousness and I was aware enough as to what was going on around me and that these people of faith were involved in positive community change. My church was involved with trying to make positive community changes where the other churches in our community. And so spiritual growth and development and um, a life of faith to me, for me, 
uh, was directly and closely associated with um, addressing community needs, with community change, addressing the the things that people needed just to make a go of it from day to day. And there was little to no disconnect uh, for me with that. And that was about service. So faith development really was about service uh, for me. And it's that, service, and it's also how you engage with issues in your community, affecting exactly. your community, right? That's right. I mean, that, that, you know, that was, it was just a part of what it meant to be a faithful person person in your in your upbringing that's exactly right there was no it was fully integrated yeah and I only you know I only came to know that perhaps other people had points of view on that when I went away to college and I my college required religion courses and you know all kinds of discussions about you know um, whether or not you could actually uh, equate faith with works as it Mm. were and 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 that whole debate that went on but it formed me, yeah, and um, and it, it very much uh, it very much carries through to to this day. Yeah, you've shared with me a story that I just think is worth um, bringing up. That there were some pretty um, flamboyant types in 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 the church and around the church in your hometown, yeah, <clears throat> small time North North uh, Carolina, yeah. and and what it kind of you know thinking back on what it meant to have these. Flamboyant, uh, presumably gay men, um, fully integrated into the life of the faith community. Just, right. I wonder if you could just say a word about well, that. Yeah, and fully in, integrated into the life of community generally in our little village in Belmont. So these were um, actually relatives, my mother's friends. Um, it was mostly men. I came to learn later that there were um, several women as well. Um, Many of them were, um, several of them were what we would call cross-dressing men. Uh, but, you know, they were people's children. They were, they were part of the larger family and community of that little black village. So, you know, um, Wilbur, or Tuck as we called him, you know, he played uh, the piano in, in churches. James was a, um, a, a, a caterer, among other jobs that he did, and uh, would help out at church with meals. Uh, when we graduated from high school and had a prom, he sponsored a big before the prom party that all of our uh, little community came out to. And in the 60s, uh, 70s, um, George, or Georgie Boy as we called him, George was living with, uh, had a living male partner, you know. And, and, you know, there were comments about it, but it was accepted because, you know, uh, Tuck was Helen's son, and um, and and James was Mr. Theo's well, son. In some and ways, it was accepted because they were people. They were people. They were full they were people who were community. part of the community. Absolutely. They were they were sisters, brothers, uh, uncles, uh, children. You know, yeah. I I think it's <clears throat> as we're in this moment where. Um, people like these people in your community are being held up and demonized as a way to show what's other and what's not part of our community. It's just important to remember that this is, you know, LGBTQ people have always been part of the community. And, um, you know, it makes me, it makes me wonder how that has impacted you and your work with, you know, this contested term now called religious freedom, and how you get into that conversation with the background that you come from. Sure. So there are a few pieces to it. I think that what we're seeing going on now is religious people on the right, the far right, using the LGBTQ community as a foil, as a way of organizing. It was abortion um, before that. Um, It was race before that. And so now they need a new organizing cry, and without any compunction, without any sort of heeding to the to the call of the gospel and the scriptures, um, they have decided that um, that LGBTQ people are um, a target, yeah. and that they that this community can be used for organizing. Um, and it's across faith traditions now too, right? Yeah. There's yeah. a big article in the paper somewhere in the Midwest now, a group of people who uh, embrace Islam uh, are 
have gone after a local school board over right. books and what's yeah, I was in Dearborn. In yeah, Dearborn. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting and I, it's it's heartbreaking as well because it really is. Um, it's it fails to recognize that within every one of those communities, including within Islam, there are you know no, LGBTQ totally. people. You know, yes. and and it's not like and religion versus children, and they're people's children, they and are they are not and objects. They are, no, they are not objects, they're not and they are pawns yeah. to be used for organizing. Absolutely. So tell me about like how does this fit in with religious freedom? Because right. I, I, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, you you're very involved in this question on the on the international front, and maybe you can start there. Like, right. and I, I, it doesn't have to be just about LGBTQ. Like, how do you understand religious freedom? as a person who's trying to navigate this in part for the U.S. government yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, totally. Well, let me just say it started, I mean, we had, it started in earnest for me really with the advent of char- charitable choice in 1996 in the welfare reform legislation, which I actually supported. And then it, it became very real uh, when um, I was on the White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships uh, in the Obama administration and we were asking this question, what should the regulations look like around this, particularly when it comes to religious freedom and the delivery of social services and other things? So here's, here's my take on this, is that for religious institutions that want to be involved in partnership with the government to do any number of things, um, if they're going to accept government money to do it, then there should not be any right to discriminate against people in the delivery of those services or in hiring people to do the work that is funded by public dollars. 1,000%. But, but public dollars means your money, right. my money. Well, yes, yeah, you know, so uh, thank you. Yeah, and so I, I realize that that's probably at odds with this Supreme Court, but I think that's where we should start. And if there's any reason for deviating this from that, it should be extraordinarily compelling. Right. Because right. we get into some really murky and difficult territory when we decide that you can accept public money and then decide who you're going to serve and who you're not going to serve and who you're going to hire just based on your religious beliefs using public money to do it and who you're not. Totally. And I mean, it's, it's uh, the way you're describing it is so common sense. And, and, and yet it is, it is something that's being debated. I just want to say thank you for being so clear on it. How do you feel like um, that is playing out in America? But then how do you see religious freedom? There's different issues when you go abroad, you know, because you're going around the world talking about religious freedom. So I don't want to like, I want to, I want, I want to make sure that we get a chance to to get into that. It's different in different contexts, right? So um, let me just say at a high level, the, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom has a responsibility by law to advise the U.S. government, mainly the White House, the State Department, and the Congress, on how U.S. foreign policy can be formed and shaped in order to support freedom of religion or belief or no belief um, in countries around the world. Um, And the way it plays out again at a high level is that um, religious minorities pretty much become the the constituents of USERF Uh because religious minorities in countries around the world are generally those that are discriminated against. Now, some of that is some of those um, communities are evangelical Christian communities or Christian communities more broadly. Uh, that are simply trying to be in countries where they are in the minority. Um, some of it are uh, Muslim sects in, um, in countries where they are the minority. Um, some of that has to do with different expressions of Islam, so Sunnis and Shiites, uh, et cetera, right, right. Uh, struggling I, to... I, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, what's interesting is that just hearing you say that, like, you know, like really light bulb went off, although it's a dull light bulb because it's pretty obvious, but what is the religious minority in one country is the religious majority exactly. in another country. Exactly. And so it's not about like we're lifting up evangelicals everywhere. It's like right. where when evangelicals or Christians or Catholics right. are a minority in a country, 
you know, but, or, but then it can be Hindus in another country. It could be Muslims in another country, yeah, right? Absolutely. So it's not about a specific religion. That's exactly It's right. about in, envisioning a world where everybody can be themselves um, in the context in which they live. That's exactly right. So the Rohingya in Buddhist uh, Myanmar or Burma um, are, re- you know, they, ex- they live in a very tragic and horrific situation perpetrated by Buddhist extremists, which right. we don't often hear. We do not hear Myanmar. about that. And um, it's really, I think, thank you for raising that up because, like, there's an idea that all oh, Buddhists are just ringing bells and on yes, the mat. Right. And, and this is just, the reality is, is that religion can be weaponized absolutely, anywhere. Absolutely. And it's, every religion can be weaponized exactly anywhere. Right. I, I wonder if we can switch um, to talk a little bit about your work at Interfaith America and you know, specifically lifting up the location of black history in America as a location right. for interfaith work and as, you know, something that we should, that should not be on the fringes, but actually should be at the center of what we're thinking about, about what is, what is to be celebrated about the history of our country. And, and, and that has many arms that you're working on right now. I wonder if you could talk a little bit just about the Black Interfaith Project at Interfaith America, as well as, well, I want to turn to midterms and, and go back to the conversation of uh, white Christian nationalism, which I think those things go together. Sure. So on the, at, um, at uh, Interfaith America, uh, again, formerly uh, IFYC, I serve as the senior advisor for racial equity. Under that rubric um, are several programs, one of which is called Black, the Black Interfaith Project, the Black Interfaith Program. And um, uh, sort of simply put, it is a program designed to appreciate the history of black faith diversity in America and the way in which that black faith diversity has played out within the black community itself. So in other words, um, the experience of black interfaith in American communities as unique unto itself. Our default tends to be that um, people of African descent in America are, are Christian, and most are. But there is a rich, rich web tapestry of other faith traditions within the black community that we have not highlighted, celebrated, or accessed in terms of the interaction of these faith communities with one another um, as a source of strength, uh, power, uh, agency, and direction for uh, how we live out our lives in America today. So this project wants to, um, in the first order, appreciate that history, right? Acknowledge it, talk about it, share it through stories and papers and events, and then look at how that history of black interfaith engagement within the African-American community or the black community in America intersects and integrates with the larger faith community and the larger interfaith community in the country. And all of that leads again to this really wonderful experiment of a religiously diverse democracy that we're all trying to support and maintain. Yeah, I think it's extraordinary. And the people who have come together for this project, congratulations. It's really, it is, I think, one of the most exciting things in the interfaith movement, if we can call it. It's, it's, it's a, it's an, it's an edge that shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be on an edge. It right. should be really, it's at the core and it's just, it's wonderful the way you are bringing it together. I've been to events. We, you've had events at the White House. Yes. Um, you've had events at the National um, Museum for African American Culture and History. Right. Uh, you, you, you're you just doing amazing things bringing people together. And so I just. There, I, there are a lot of people to thank for that. I, I want to acknowledge my colleague, Alexis Vaughn. who The, the Reverend Alexis Extraordinary, the Loose Foundation and, yes. and Jonathan Van Interpreter for supporting it. Yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of people and a lot of institutions, organizations involved in this. But it is, uh, and 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 Ibu Patel and in, in Faith America for recognizing yeah. the need to do Absolutely. this. So Absolutely. It's, uh, it's Absolutely, important it's important work. It's exciting work. And yeah. Talk about, about. Uh, as an extension of this, but but really central to all of our lives right now is is. 
where voting fits into this. And you have a project called The Vote is Sacred. Tell us about Vote is Sacred and tell me, tell us personally, like how you're feeling about these midterms and what's at stake? What should we be thinking about? So um, the Vote is Sacred project uh, begins with the premise that the image of God, the image of the divine exists in every person. And fundamental to that is the um, ability to choose agency. Um, and voting is right at the heart of that agency. And it's a sacred act. And to deny people the right to exercise that agency is blasphemous, is to deny the sacred within them uh, and the right to exercise what's sacred within them. So th this project looks at promoting voting, working with colleges and universities, uh, working with other national institutions, obviously working with interfaith institutions around the country uh, to promote that. It's, it's particularly important, I think, going into um, the midterms in 2024 that we, that we really pay attention to all the efforts, uh, Florida being the most egregious of them, at voter suppression um, around the country. It is blasphemous. It is not of the divine. It is not holy to deny people the right to, to vote. Um, I would call on Americans who, you know, are concerned about rightfully economy, the crime, you know, those issues, and would tend to want to um, uh, back people who deny uh, election victories, uh, people who want to exclude uh, people from the democratic process, people who believe in all kinds of conspiracy theories um, about um, all types of folks, people who engage in uh, both subtle and blatant anti-Semitism, that before we find ourselves backing those people, which it looks like uh, a majority of Americans might because of fears about so economy and the economy and, 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 and what's portrayed as crime through the media, we should think whether or not we want to enter into um, a pact with people who believe those things, yeah. who not only believe yeah. them but actually exercise them. Yeah. And particularly as people of faith, we should ask ourselves, is that holy? You know, is that holy? And, and what happens when, which will happen when these people don't live up to what they're claiming they're going to provide? If we've allowed autocrats, autocrats and authoritarians, um, people who would deny elections, uh, people who would engage in all types of racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, to then control the levels of, levers of power, how are we going to be able to wrest that from them when they will disappoint us? Reverend uh, Fred Davey is Senior Advisor on Racial Equity at Interfaith America and serves on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Fred, thank you so much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. I really appreciate you and all you're doing. Well, thank you, Paul, and thanks for all you do as well. All you've done here at Interfaith America, all you do at Inter the Interfaith Alliance, and all you've done um, with your entire life. It's, it's good to call you a friend and a colleague. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this week's show. I hope these conversations have been as inspiring for you as they were for me. Our guests today are facing the enormous challenges facing our democracy head on and using that as a starting point for bridge building and creating community around shared values and foundational principles. These are the stories we need to keep hearing because it's the scary stories that always seem to get the most attention. And this is a great example of what State of Belief is all about and a great reason to help us amplify voices like these who are doing the crucial work. I hope you will consider helping us grow with a financial contribution. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. We are going to keep bringing you these stories and you can be a part of making sure these encouraging stories are heard by sharing State of Belief on your social media 
and emailing it to your friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories celebrating the creative contributions our diverse belief systems can offer for the future as we join together and build a nation with liberty and justice for all. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.